0: Welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today on the podcast, I interview Dr. Kelly Carter-Jackson, assistant professor in the Africana Studies Department at Wellesley College. Dr. Carter-Jackson is on to discuss her brand new, literally published two-day book, published by our friends at Penn Press, entitled Force and Freedom. Black abolitionists and the politics of violence. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jackson, Dr. Carter Jackson, Dr. Kelly Carter Jackson.
1: (laughs) Thank you. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm great. I'm doing great. (laughs) Trying to stay warm. (laughs) Good, good, good.
0: Yeah, yes, it's snowing out here. It's snowing out here. So, um, you know, like you know, thank you so much for taking the time um, on your very busy schedule on this beautiful tour that you are on. Um and so I really hope that your your tour goes well. And so um yeah, yeah. And so um can you tell us how this project began?
1: Yeah, sure. So this project began really in undergrad. I was a student at Howard University and I was a rising junior and I became a part of a program called the Ronald E McNair Program. It's sort of a, sort of like Mellon. Some people may be familiar with it. It's a, it's a pipeline program that helps get under, underrepresented students into uh, graduate school. And they pair you with a mentor, you do research. And so for me, this was the first time that I was able to, to conduct research in an archive with a historian. Uh, we went to Moreland Spingard, which is one of the largest repositories of uh, African-American history. And I got a chance to start reading some of the original letters that Frederick Douglass wrote and seeing the newspapers that were published in the 19th century. And I was like dumbfounded. I I couldn't believe that this is what historians did, that they work with like the actual documents. And so I was all in at that moment. And I wrote two papers. One was on Frederick Douglass and his private life, his life as a father and grandfather. Um, And the other one was on John Brown. And when I started working on John Brown, I was so fascinated by him and his tactics to take up violence. And I was kind of like, who is this white man that's taking up you know, arms in defense of black people? Um, and when I concluded with that paper was that John Brown, in a lot of ways, was not a leader. He was a follower. He was a follower of black uh, revolutionary ideas and traditions and practices. And in a lot of ways, Brown was putting Black thought into practice and Black activism into practice. Um, And so that's where the genesis of it started. Um, And then it morphed into something way more complex and sophisticated in graduate school and sort of brought us to where we are today.
0: And 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 speaking of graduate school, where did you, uh, you do your graduate training?
1: So I went to Columbia University, and I studied under the illustrious Eric Foner. <laughs> He's wonderful, absolutely mm-hmm. wonderful. I also worked with Barbara Fields and Samuel Roberts, and before he passed, uh, the great Manny Mirabal. So I had fantastic advisors and professors at at Columbia. It was a great experience.
0: And it definitely sounds like it, considering that. You know, group of scholars.
1: Yeah, of yeah. I feel like I had the heavy hitters. Yeah. I had all the heavy hitters.
0: <laughs> yes, you have, and uh, you also had uh, someone in the in your acknowledgments um, that I know very well, uh, Ryan McNabb. Shouts out to Boaf. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Boaf crew, and that's Boston <laughs> African American National Historic Site for for the uninitiated. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, I, I used to work there as a, as an interpreter for about a little under a year. That's
1: fantastic. And, um, so
0: it's really cool to see his name. Oh,
1: man. I mean, first of all, I can't thank the Park Service enough. They do such good work, and I feel like they don't get a lot of the praise that they deserve. I, When I was a postdoc at Harvard, I used to take classes. I would do field trips all the time for the Black Heritage Trail in Boston. And Ryan gave the best tours and he was so informative and he really helped me think and rethink some of the ideas that I had in the book, especially around Lewis Hayden um, and Black Bostonians and their activism. And so whenever anyone helps me with an idea, they pretty much get a shout out in the book. (laughs)
0: outstanding we yeah we you know we we love you know we love those uh those shout outs you know we love to shout out our bearded friends in the world and uh ryan has you know i don't know if he had to back yeah, then but did. i
1: know he has a he did. huge one
0: now yeah it's great <laughs> well um yeah, no, no, for sure it is. And so, can you talk to us a bit? Um, in the, now that we got through, you know, this first part, can you talk to us a bit about, you know, why you wanted to? Because you talked about, you know, your experience in the stacks at, at Moreland Spingarn. You talked about your graduate particular training, but what about violence was a theme that you wanted to broach in a full length uh, uh, a book? specifically about how not only abolitionists, right, because that that could have been one, but specifically Black abolitionists. Yeah,
1: I think it me, was please. so just understudied and underdeveloped. So when I think about violence, um, I think that violence deserves a much more nuanced conversation. Um, I think that in America, we tend to have this romantic relationship with nonviolence, we like to look back on the civil rights movement and even the abolitionist movement as these group of leaders that were committed to nonviolence or to turning the other cheek in the face of a mob. Um, And while those things do happen, I also think that we need to realize that a lot of these institutions, like slavery, like segregation, are birthed in violence. They're created by violence. They're sustained by violence. And a lot of times it's violence that uh, brings about their, um, brings about their demise. So when I was looking at the abolitionist movement, I noticed what I was reading where white abolitionists were taking one particular stance, but black abolitionists were taking a much more radical uh, stance in terms of how they foresaw the, the overthrow of slavery. And so the way I start the book out is by looking at uh, William Lloyd Garrison and the founding of the abolitionist movement through non-resistance, through moral suasion. Um, These are ideas that basically said they thought that they could convince slaveholders that slavery was wrong. This is also during the Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, where people believe that um, Christ is coming back. They believe that slavery is a sin. And so if they can convince slave owners that slavery is wrong, then they will just, you know, Free their slaves and have this, you know, come to Jesus moment. That does not happen. <laughs> Nothing even close to that happens. Um, but what I talk about in the book is I. There's a line in which I say, you know, if moral suasion is the house that William Lloyd Garrison built, black leaders were just renters. That they never really owned these ideas. That they were always. Uh, proponents of self-defense and of uh, a belief in political violence and a belief in protective violence. Um, So I talk about, you know, the American revolutions, the Haitian revolutions, people like David Walker, people like Henry Highland Garnett, um, and how they really understood what violence was and how violence could be used as a tool to overthrow or to replace um, insidious systems.
0: And and you know you you talked about one of my fa- all time favorite people being the great North Carolinian. Region, <laughs> shout out to North Carolina. That's where the Fams from the K. Fear region. Shouts out to them, um, because you know David Walker, um, you know obviously is one of the most important figures um, that to me just doesn't you know he, he not enough people I think know about him. Um I, I interviewed um uh, a scholar uh late last year who wrote a book, uh, Race Over Party, um uh Millington, uh, Dr. Millington, and um and and he talked about his, his son, uh Edwin um Walker. And so, you know, he, he's been receiving some some uh, added attention recently, but I think you know his father, David Walker, is just an exceptional uh, uh an exceptional revolutionary. Um, and, and, you know, especially as someone, you know, who's lived in Boston and, and would do the Black Heritage Trail, I would always try to tell folks, because it technically is not on the route. Um, but the house that, uh, Mariah Stewart, uh, the woman that, you know, became the first, you know, especially on the day on the first day of, um, of, uh, of Women's uh, yeah. History Month, you got a shout out to Mariah Stewart, the first American born woman to speak in front of a promiscuous audience in yeah. American <laughs> history. They lived, you know, uh, next wild. door to each other um, in the in the late eighteen twenties and early eighteen thirties. Before the untimely demise of of uh, James Stewart, the husband of um, of, uh, of Mariah, and then obviously David and his daughter mm-hmm. ended up mm-hmm. succumbing as
1: well. Yeah, I mean, David Walker to me is so important because in a lot of ways, the pamphlet that he wrote, uh, this appeal was is, is really serves as a wonderful bookend for how we understand the ideological stance that Black leadership is is taking and continues to develop from the 1830s all the way up until the Civil War. Um, and I think it's important because what David Walker is talking about is not just violence for violence's sake. It's not just, you know, going into the plantation and splitting people's throats and all of that. Um, he believed in moral suasion if it could be achieved. But if it could not, um, and he didn't have a lot of confidence that it could, he also believed in self-defense and he believed in collective defense, meaning not just protecting yourselves or your loved ones, but your community um, and Black people at large. And that you know that if we were to stand up to what what the the slave institution and to be able to take up arms against it and to get um, white Americans to really see the error of their ways and to see that. Slavery itself is violence um, that we could um, really create a, a whole new world in the United States. Um, and so I think Walker's writing, they're just so important because it is sophisticated. It is complicated. It is Nuance, but at the same time, it's also a very simple way of looking at freedom, a very simple way of looking at um, people's human rights and their natural rights and their God-given rights to defend themselves and protect themselves.
0: And and it's also interesting too in the background of the religiosity of many of the activists too. So can you kind of talk about that part? You know, we have a uh, in a, a particular. Uh, affiliation uh, of a of a church, uh, People's Baptist Church in Boston. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, shouts out, you know Roxbury. You know, <laughs> shout out Roxbury in the house. You feel me? Um, and so, um, so we have that particular part. And so it's interesting, you know, thinking about that that context of where really the abolitionist, mm-hmm. the popular abolitionist movement would have been founded, which would have been at the the form that the original location of the church. First, the first African Baptist Church, mm-hmm. headed by uh, Reverend Thomas Paul, right. And so, can can you talk a bit about kind of like that sure. intertwining of the religiosity sure. so with the revolutionary it's, violence?
1: It's, well, let me provide a little bit of context. So in the in the eighteen thirties, a lot of the white abolitionists right, who are right. joining the movement, some of them are Quakers, they're pacifists, they don't believe in violence, and so all throughout the eighteen fifties, they're saying. You know, we turn the other cheek. We are not going to even defend ourselves that non-resistance is the only way to go. So that when um, someone like Elijah Lovejoy, who is a printer and an abolitionist in Illinois, uh, when he uses a gun to protect himself um, and he says, you know, he's going to basically shoot off some like warning shots because he's being attacked by a mob. And hopefully that those warning shots will disperse the mob. Um And he winds up getting killed as a result of that that mob attack. Um, And William Lloyd Garrison says something really important after Elijah Lovejoy dies. He says, you know, uh, Elijah Lovejoy was a martyr, but strictly speaking, he's not a Christian martyr because no Presbyterian minister should be taking up arms, even in self-defense. And so when this happens, a lot of black leadership is like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Like We don't think that's necessarily true. And so from a biblical standpoint, people are using the Bible to understand and to legitimize self-defense to see self-defense as godly, to see self-defense as a part of your natural human right, but also part of your Christian um, identity to protect yourself, to protect your community, to protect those who are either oppressed or vulnerable. And so um, you start to see the evolution of Black leadership using the Bible and using um, biblical principles to really understand how slavery's demise is going to come about, and how violence is integral to that. So uh, there is a speech that Frederick Douglass gives, and he says, you know, basically slavery's only going to die by by violent force. And then Sojourner Truth is at that same speech, and she admonishes Frederick Douglass, and she says, you know, Frederick, is God dead? As though God can't uh, deliver us. And then Douglass writes, like this is in his one of his narratives, um, right afterwards, and he says. Yes, but by the time the Civil War came, Sojourner Truth found also, like, the the legitimacy of, of fighting to overthrow slavery. And it's how she saw the Civil War. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. well, this looks like God's deliverance, right? Like, when you start to see, you know, war actually happening. So mm-hmm, it's not mm-hmm. something that is... um that is a collective idea that's happening all at the same time. People are coming to it at different points in their lives. hemi Highland Garnett comes to it much quicker than Frederick Douglass does. There are certain, I think, pivot points that allow people to sort of reach their breaking point and to accept um, self-defense and protective violence earlier than others do. But by the start of the Civil War, the bulk of Black abolitionists are heavily invested in these ideas about force and about violence and about how that is grounded in biblical principles more than any other group.
0: And and I think, you know, thinking about the specific group, you know, black abolitionists, right? You're thinking about many of them being formally enslaved themselves yes. and how they have a different uh, relationship to slavery in that, you know, even though some of many of them weren't enslaved, just the nature of Blackness mm-hmm. and and how it was constituted in the time, really, I, I would say that based upon my reading, um, helped to lead them to the notion that their interpretation, anyway, was that violence was, you know, not only you know allowed, but it was necessary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 so can, can is it also can you also speak to kind of how um, even. I noticed in some of the eras of the book where there are folks who who speak, especially on the Boston connection and the American North, how they hearken back to a revolutionary past yeah. in the American Revolution and the War of 1812. Yeah.
1: So I think I think there's two things that I want to highlight here to answer your question. One, one of the reasons why I centralize black abolitionists, why I sort of um, take them and place them in the center is because, one, I see them as the first abolitionists. And I think it's important to let, you know, listeners know that Black people were the first people to advocate for their own freedom. That they didn't need to wait for a sympathetic white ally to come along and say, this is a problem, right? Like, they know that and they're active in that. So there's the, the reason why I centralize them is because I see them as the first abolitionists. And there's a lot of other reasons why I focus on Black abolitionists, but that's the main reason. They are the first. Uh, they are responsible for recruiting white people to come into the movement. Um, and I really want to dispel the myth that this is a movement of you know white sympathetic men to free black people of their chains. I, I really want to give black people agency. But the second part of that is because I believe that While white abolitionists may have believed in emancipation, they didn't necessarily believe in equality. And so the twofold mission of all Black abolitionists was emancipation and equality, because you could free the enslaved, but Black people who were free, especially Black people who were free, you know, living in the North and places like New York and Boston, understood that freedom didn't really mean anything if you didn't have equality. And so that's so important. So when they're looking at the American Revolution, they see it as somewhat hy- hypocritical. They see it as incomplete because, you know, they're like, well, Patrick Henry saying give me liberty or give me death. And Patrick Henry owned slaves, you know, so the, the, a lot of this uh, revolutionary talk that happens um, is useful to them for understanding about how violence is a tool. But really, they're most inspired by the Haitian Revolution, this era of revolutions. But the Haitian Revolution shows them this is what looks like when you can have the overthrow of a, of a European power and at the same time institute emancipation and equality. Um, and so that is what black leaders are really pushing for, that it, even if you can be free in the North, you couldn't necessarily vote. You didn't have access to the best jobs. Um, you weren't considered a citizen. You know, when we think about the the Dred Scott case, uh, you had no rights, which a white man was bound to respect. You essentially had no protection from the federal government. So I ask readers in the book, you know, what options do you have if you're not able to vote, if you don't have Conventional methods or access to be able to reform your government what choices do you have um, and I think violence is one of the ways in which it becomes a political language it becomes a way of communicating your desires for reform when you don't have access to the ballot
0: and and the ballot you know is definitely something that you know I think about when it comes to the kind of Work that you're talking about, because like I think about Malcolm, another someone who who had a boss connection too, mm. uh, and his uh, ballad. Yeah, bullet, yeah, It uh, doesn't give the speech, speech and... just
1: like that. <laughs> Called the ballad or, the yeah, of the yep, bullet. Exactly. <laughs> he said, "Give mm-hmm. us the ballad of the bullet. We've um, had enough. you are sick of it.
0: it." Exactly, and they have that. Um, they have that part of the transcript on the side of uh, of the church um, where they mm-hmm. give the tours. Um, for, for at uh, the Museum of African American History, we got to shout yeah. out them too. And so, um, and so, yeah, you know, I, I think about that you know, because you have the, the you know, the popular friction between William Lloyd Garrison, a pacifist, and um, uh, uh Frederick Douglass. So, the, obviously, the violence part isn't necessarily how they mm-hmm. and why they broke up, but that was beginning that was a uh, that was a begin that was a part of. Of uh, their mm-hmm. ideological mm-hmm. split, um, along with uh, Douglas uh, creating his own newspaper. Now the the North Star. Um, so, can you also speak to the point about how abolitionists how, how did how did their political mm. critiques um, really start to take on more and more mm-hmm. weight? as we lead up through the 1830s 40s and 50s so
1: i will say that all throughout the the 30s black abolitionists 30s and 40s somewhat are are on board with their white counterparts and i think part of that is because they're happy to have an ally right they're happy to have someone who will take up this uh who will take up this challenge with them to end the institution of slavery. Um, but I think a lot of that changes when you hit 1850. I see 1850 really as a pivotal political moment because it is when the Fugitive Slave Law is instituted. So the Fugitive Slave Law... Uh, for those who don't know, it has always been on the books. It's been on the books since like 1793. If you're familiar with uh, Erica Dunbar's Never Caught, she talks about how George Washington used the fugitive slave law to try to go after his slave owner judge. Um, and so it's something that had always been around. But when 1850 uh, comes, it's part of the Great Compromise of 1850, talking about the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and I think that uh, it is used to really now have teeth on it. So fugitives that have run away, whether they ran away five days ago, five years ago, now slaveholders and and slave catchers can go after them and retrieve them from wherever they are in the North. Um, And because free Black people don't have a right to testify, they don't have a right to sound juries, you can't sort of advocate for yourself. It becomes a real, uh, a a huge accelerator in the movement, that now not only are you at risk if you are a fugitive slave, but you're at risk if you're a free black person. So all of that, I think, has has a huge impact on how black people start to mobilize. So politically, they're advocating for more rights. Politically, they're starting to mobilize, create their own black self-protection societies in the face of the fugitive slave law. Um, They are really becoming much more active and much more forceful in ways that uh, were not necessarily there in the 1820s and 30s and 40s. Uh, So you see that 30 years into the movement, Abolitionists haven't made that much progress. You know, moral suasion has not worked. In a lot of ways, it's been ineffective. All throughout the Antebellum period, there is no new legislation that benefits um, the enslaved, that benefits free Black people. Everything favors slaveholders. So they realize they have to be more forceful in their tactics. Um, And all throughout the 50s, uh, 1850s, I think you see this rise of Black militancy that accelerates the environment that leads to the civil war.
0: About that too, with, um, with the, the, the 1830s, you have, you know, the Grimke sisters, you have all these different um, groups who are sh- showing their outward uh, uh, affinity, I guess, for, um for for black rights to a certain degree right mm-hmm. um not necessarily mm-hmm. equality which i think mm-hmm. was an important piece of what you just mentioned um but then i also think about how african americans uh and, and and black folks generally because you know your black abolitionists can be you know in Scots like i'm i'm a i work with the color Conventions project at mm. the university of delaware and we see like folks there was a convention where there was, a, uh, 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 this was in the 18, early 1830s in Philadelphia, where there's an act, uh, there's a, a ministry who came all the way from Antigua. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, mm-hmm. it's a very, you know, not just African-American centered part, which is a good part about, you know, having black in there, you know, and capitalize at that. Um, mm-hmm. But but to that point, though, can you speak to really how, you know, when John Brown, who, who is a... Who, who, violence-wise is you know you talked about bleeding Kansas and well, mm. Kansas Nebraska Act so you know bleeding mm-hmm. Kansas along with it, that, yeah, yeah, which is part of it. Um, how how do African Americans react to John Brown? Not necessarily you know specifically yet talking about the raid, but more so, mm. how did African Americans really? React to John Brown, but also how did he react to their ideologies? Mm. Because you're talking about the agency of, uh, of Black abolitionists and how their ideologies helped to bring the movement along yeah. uh, to found it, but also bring it along. So John Brown is given so much weight, but yeah, yeah. you know there there's not enough folks. Who have looked at it from your perspective? Mm -hmm. So, can you speak Mm -hmm. to us about that kind of manifestation of the political ideologies?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so uh, necessary to have that conversation because while I love John Brown, he's great. I'm a fan, right? But, but I do Mm -hmm. think that we also need to start seeing him more and more as a follower, and and him more and more as a fan of Black people. So, you know, John Brown loves the Haitian Revolution. He can't get enough history or information about Toussaint L'Ouverture and what happens in Haiti. Um, You know, on, when he died, he had a, um, it was a biography of of Toussaint L'Ouverture on him that he carried around the writings of David Walker and, and Henry Holland Garnett's famous speech. He tried to get them published. Um, He believed in what black abolitionists were trying to achieve. Um, And he believed in, radical violence uh, and political violence to uh, overthrow the institution of slavery. And so he's heavily supported by Black uh, patrons, that when he is trying to fundraise before he goes out to Canada, he's stopping at Black churches, he's visiting Black people's homes, he's saying, hey, I'm planning this raid, I'm thinking about doing this. How should I approach it? Can you help me raise funds? Can you support me? Can you tell me where I can stay, where I can go? He is constantly seeking out their, um, their wisdom, their resources. You know, one of the first few people he seeks out is Frederick Douglass. He says, Frederick, you know, I need you. I think you can help me rally the people, you can help me rally the troops. Uh, He seeks out Harriet Tubman and um, and says to Harriet Tubman, you know, you've made all these trips back and forth from the south to the north. I think if you're a part of this raid, you would be instrumental in helping the slaves get to the mountains and get to the north. Um, A lot of people don't know about Mary Ellen Pleasant, famous black woman. They know her and sort of maybe her role in California. But she's the single largest donor to John Brown's raid. She donates over thirty thousand dollars of her wealth to the cause, uh, which is a lot of money. I still want to find out Mm -hmm. for inflation, how much money that would be. Um, but you know, $30 is a lot of money in the 1850s. So 30,000 is quite the fortune. She gave him a, not a small fortune, but a large fortune fortune, uh, to help him in this raid. So there are a lot of black people that, um, come together and support him and, and also caution him as well and let him know, Hey, listen, you know, black people aren't going to readily trust you. Um, and how do we, you know, convey your ideas in a way that's going to be receptive to them because, you know, black people are very weary about white people, even when they, you know, say that they're there to help them. Um, they're always cautious about whether or not it's going to be a trap. So, uh, in all of chapter four, I talk about John Brown and I talk about the silent leadership or the silenced uh, Black leaders that really have not been put at the center, but really placed at the periphery of this story. And so what I want to do is, is give them more of a, of a center stage and say, no, these are the ones that are really pushing these ideas. John Brown is simply a conduit. He is simply a foot soldier in this, in this movement. Um, and that to me is one of the most exciting chapters as well. Just to get a different perspective on a story that I think many people are familiar with, but don't realize how much of the act that's taking place is really because of black practices and principles.
0: Exactly, and the the point on Mary Ellen Pleasant, you know, I was like,
1: yeah, I, know. Like, I, I had. No,
0: like, I hand to God, like She's committed. I definitely did not. She's committed know, and said she like, was
1: given more. That's the other thing. When she died, her um her gravestone says she was a friend of John Brown. She wanted that to be her legacy, and she was also furious with Brown as well because she said that you know they had a plan and that he jumped the gun by two weeks. So she says the reason the raid failed was not because black people didn't want to participate. It was because Brown um, went early. He went too soon and he went before the appointed time and that they they were never able to recover from that, those acts, but she was ready. And I think, I think it also shows you, I talk about this in the book too, that, you know, self-defense and political violence is not gendered. That women have just as much of a dog in this fight, uh, given Women's History Month, right, as anybody, as mm-hmm, anybody mm-hmm. else. And so I try to highlight, um, albeit they're not a ton of stories, but the very stories that I, that I have, I find to be very significant about Black women speaking out about violence and participating in violence and participating in force, which I think is really, is really uh, powerful.
0: And and that's also why I love the first part of your title, force and freedom, because those two are directly (laughs) tied. You know, you have no freedom without, you know, force, right? And that force can obviously come in, in a multitude of ways, which in this case will be you know, the, the, the gun that's on the,
1: yeah, board, yeah. uh, but, but I was torn out, yeah. I'll, I'll say that, um, so I was torn about the title because I had thought about forcing freedom and I was thinking of alliterations, but, but I thought mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. forcing freedom or force for freedom, I did all of these little, um, you know, sort of like word outlines thinking about what I wanted to do. But I think force and freedom is so important because they really do go hand in hand. And I think in the book, I also try to distinguish, uh, distinguish force from violence. So while violence is always forceful, force is not necessarily violent, right? So you can use force to compel, to persuade, to threaten, um, but you're not necessarily committing acts of, of violence per se. Um, But I also wanted people to understand that when we think about, you know, the era of revolutions, all of these things come about through violence. The American Revolution is violent. The French Revolution is violent. The Haitian Revolution is violent. The Civil War is the most deadliest war ever experienced in American history. So we benchmark violence with our timelines. Like when you think about how you know classes are taught we teach classes from the american revolution to the civil war from the civil war to you know world war 1 or world war 2 and then the war in vietnam and mm-hmm. post 9/11 that we use violence to benchmark progress we use violence to benchmark turning points and so to me it was really important to think about not just how we obtain freedom but what tools we employ to earn or to gain our freedom and that's often uh, through force and violence.
0: And what are the stakes as a professor in a class? And people know that you wrote a book on how effectively, you know, black people wielded force for their freedom, and it's violent. So, yeah, so you kind of see where we're getting at, right? Now. I mean, so, I think
1: it's it's. Um, what I tell my students is that, you know, in the 19th century, this project works really well. And it works, it works really well because mm-hmm. people, hopefully, can readily concede that slavery is wrong today. They can readily concede that violence would be necessary to overthrow the institution of slavery. We can say that now. In the moment, in the historical moment of the 19th century, it's trickier to do that but i think what my students often struggle with is okay today in the 21st century how do we apply these ideas and i think the uncomfortable truth is that when we see nonviolence today when we see nonviolent protest um it's it is um not only in some ways has it become ineffective but I think that we have violent responses to nonviolent protest. So if you think of Colin Kaepernick, he's the perfect example of someone who mm-hmm. says, OK, I'm going to take mm-hmm. up nonviolent protests. Right. I'm going to kneel for the flag. I'm not going to put the middle finger up for the flag. I'm not going to turn my back on the flag. I'm simply going to kneel for the flag. I mean, think about kneeling. It is a it's a subservient posture, right? You kneel when you propose to someone, you kneel in prayer, right? In some ways it, it could be a posture of, of reverence in a lot of ways. Um, but that very act mm-hmm. caused a thunderstorm, a firestorm of anger and rage. And, you know, maybe not in the street violence, but people were certainly upset. And so, um, so I think that in the 21st century, we have a much harder time reckoning with the utility of of force and reckoning with the utility of violence because it makes us so uncomfortable because it's not as clean cut as slavery, but racism is just as violent. Racism is just as pervasive, but because racism is, is constantly, you know, reincarnating itself. So it's from slavery to segregation, from segregation to, you know, mass incarceration or sort of pick your institutional poison, right? Um, It's constantly reincarnating itself. It makes Mm -hmm. it more difficult to combat in black and white terms, no pun intended, but to combat in very simple terms, Uh, like you could in the 19th century.
0: Yeah. And, and, and also thinking about how violence also would force, African Americans are busy. We we think about this a lot in the context of the Great Migration, of how um, African Americans uh, f- fled the South in great numbers. Not just because, oh my gosh, the North is so amazing; <laughs> it's snow everywhere. But it's literally because like yeah. they were violently and I they they were violently economically politically the yeah. whole camp it, oppressed mm-hmm. and, and and killed in large mm-hmm. ways that forced them to move. Um and, and in large part you can kind of see this as well when we think about um the push of and the thought of African Americans emigrating yeah. to places like Canada or or, or colonizing uh, areas you know like yeah. had already been colonized like Liberia and otherwise. Or, or Honduras or other places uh, like uh, Lincoln and others were considering. Um, so can you kind of talk about, can, can you also speak to the point of, you know, we, we spoke about a lot of the other portions about within the mm-hmm. antebellum North and, 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 and Mid-South. But also, can you talk about how that sort of violence and that sort of repression also helped Yeah, to push so one of elsewhere. the things
1: that I think about is um, because of the fugitive law, slave law, it created this dynamic of fight or flight that people pretty much had two options. They could leave and go to Canada because Canada was the only safe haven at the time. Or they could say, no, I'm going to stand my ground and I'm going to fight. And so, um, but what people don't realize is that oftentimes fleeing required fighting, that you weren't just going to get out of the South, you know, without confrontation. And so I reference a lot of stories throughout the book of, you know, runaway slaves and fugitive slaves who don't just, you know, happily cross over to the other side, but that have to employ violence to, to get to freedom. And so, um, you know, there's a story of, a, of an escaped uh, slave by the name of John Anderson, and he is speaking before a, an audience and he says, you know, there was a man and he was pursuing me. I told him to stop pursuing me. He chased after me for two or three hours. I told him, if you keep coming after me, I'm going to kill you. And then he says, so I killed him. And the audience like erupts and applause, and they're like, "Yeah, Bravo, mm-hmm. you did right. You know, like uh, which shows you that times have really changed when the audiences can sort of applaud at the death of the slave catcher. Um, but he right. talks about how he he felt horrible about having to do that. And he felt like he was a a Christian man. He still wanted to be considered a godly man, um, but that this was necessary if if he was going to get to freedom. There's another story of uh, a few uh, fugitive slaves, uh, two men and two women, and they're escaping. And they arm themselves with pistols, with dirk knives, um, and they get stopped by slave catchers. And when the slave catchers see, oh, these black people are armed, like my life could be just as much at risk for trying to return them, um, that they they back off. um, And that had they not been armed... That they would have most assuredly been sent back to their masters, been sent back to the South. Um, so that you know that instance doesn't revolve violence, but it does involve force. You know, it's showing how Black people are using force to say, "Over my dead body!" Will you return me? Now, you can make good on that bluff or not, but <laughs> a lot of a lot of slave catchers were not willing to risk the gamble of if they meant those words, but they were serious about getting to freedom, and using by any means necessary to do it. So, you know, it's, it's complicated, but I think in a lot of ways, Black people are having to make really hard decisions about whether they want, want to stay in this country or not. There are people that go to Canada and stay in Canada. There are people that decide to go to Haiti and stay in Haiti. Um, but there are also people that believe I was born here, my family is here, and I'm going to fight to stay here. And and that's really what a lot of the book is about is about telling these stories of, of resistance.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And so, can you also in the last part of um, mm-hmm. our interview, can you speak to um, any uh, any mm-hmm. challenges that that came along the way as mm-hmm. you were writing and 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 and, and through the archival work, through the mm-hmm. writing process process, trying to you know. Um, uh, contextualize,
1: uh, create mm-hmm.
0: themes and such. So can, yeah. you, can you speak to that? Yeah, I think that,
1: you know, we so underestimate how difficult it is to write a book um, and to really write, to write a good book as well. You know, you hope that it's good. Uh, you hope that it has has relevancy. And um, and for me, I think the struggle was to really, to give violence, you um, a, a place of, of critique, to really understand sort of a history of last resorts. That's what I talk about, at least in the book, that this is not something where people are initially taking up guns and taking up, you know, knives and farm equipment and, and what have you. But it is an, a, a last resort in order to bring about their freedom, that Black people tried over and over again to do things nonviolently and when they saw that that was ineffective, um, this is what they saw, what worked, uh, force. And so I think I had to work really, really hard to create um, these, to to have these stories be meaningful and and sophisticated and not um, dismissed. Because I think a lot of times. In public history, we look at someone like John Brown and we just say, "Oh, he was crazy," and we dismiss him as crazy. Oh, he was a fanatic, and we sort of dismiss them with that language. And we don't do enough to really um, take apart or deconstruct what leads a person to these decisions. What Historical context, what political context, um, what economical context leads someone to make these really tough and really challenging decisions? I think that we have looked at the Underground Railroad as a set of romantic, like bedtime stories that you can package and tell to children. Um, but I think we're we're being somewhat dishonest when we act as though the Civil War was this, you know, spontaneous unfortunate outcome. Um, in a lot of ways, I see the Civil War could have happened so many years earlier than than it did. Um, but when it happens, I don't think any of us should have been surprised uh, by it. Black leaders certainly weren't. So I, I really want to take Black abolitionists and move them from the periphery and put them at the center and then give volume to their voices and then hopefully give value to their voices by showing how important their contributions were to the movement.
0: And, and you definitely did a great job of that. Thank 100,000%. Um, um And I'm not just saying that because I write I on this too. I, I love it. Um, you know, and I also think about um, your work in the context of Scholarship like um, from, from folks like Dr. Minister Sinha mm-hmm. and and uh, your your um, your mentor and advisor mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, Eric Foner. Re- you know he's written three thousand five hundred and forty five books and edited that many in his esteemed career. Yes. Um and he even Grace airwaves of the New Books Network for Gateway to yeah. Freedom a few years yeah. ago. Um, you know, along with uh, Dr. Dunbar and. And such too, whose work uh, who 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 gained a lot from the interviews through the uh Grant uh Granite Freeman, I think mm-hmm. it was, and, and the Liberate mm-hmm. in the last uh months of Ona Judge's mm-hmm. life. Um and so I'm I'm thinking about all the scholarship and a lot that's been going on in the work of abolitionism um and, and activism, black activism of the early 19th century. But then I also think about you know not only what's next for folks but thinking about how this text you know in the context of like a of you know president struggles with black lives matter and and you know yeah police violence and such so when you're out on the circuit talking to folks do you ever get people trying to uh uh, compare um the two and and if so what would be your answer Uh. to that
1: Always, always. And I love it when people make comparisons because it shows me that they are trying to connect their present circumstances with the past. And I think that the only way that we're ever going to learn anything is if we can really have an honest look at our past and then allow it to inform how we move and make decisions in the present. Um, so, you know, when people think of my work, they they think of the Black Lives Matter movement. They think of Colin Kaepernick. They think of uh, the immigration battle. I mean, when you're thinking about, you know, children being detained and separated from families, you know, all of that is so um, reminiscent of slavery um, and the battle of people trying to either to get free, to, to gain citizenship, to gain their humanity. Uh, I feel like there's so many relevant talking points that are happening today in which I hope that my work will inform some of these ideas about strategy, about method, about um, how how we move forward as a people and how we get people to really hear the oppressed and hear the marginalized. You know, uh, Martin Luther King has this great quote where he says, a riot is the language of the unheard. A riot is the language of the unheard, and I think that when we silence people for so long, when we refuse to hear them, we when we dismiss them as fanatics or crazy or or extremists, um, and we we suppress their voices, that violence is one of the ways in which uh, people can be heard. And so I never want to get to that point. I never want to get to the point where. Violence becomes this language to communicate. what i'm hoping for is that people can see that black people have been advocating for a long time for peaceful nonviolent change, and that um, people in power have to be willing to 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 accept that um, or face some really tough ramifications in in the long run. Um, I do think that there are things that i think, I do think that the institution of slavery could have been um in some ways abolished on different terms. Uh, you know, the, but Frederick Douglass says it so importantly, and I think that he's right. He says, Americans learned more in four years of war than they learned in 40 years of peace. And that's a hard pill to swallow. You know, that's a really hard pill to swallow. You want to believe that people will accept nonviolence when they see it and hear people's humanity when they hear it the first time. Um, but oftentimes by the time you get to the second, third, fifth, 10th, 20th, thousandth time, it's no longer peaceful anymore. And I don't think we should expect it
0: to be. No, it (laughs) is. Nope. Nope. Not at all. And not at all. And so, um, now that the book is published, now that you can breathe a little bit, you know, and you can just, you know, well, we'll breathe, you know, that, that the book is done, but the book tour is, you know, only begun obviously. Um, but but what would you say um, to folks that they want to know, like, this, I love this kind of question, right? What is the single biggest thing that you want people to, and you spoke to it just now a little bit, but what is, um, what is if you had to deduce it to one particular characteristic, would you say is the one that you want people to take out the most from your book? Well, what's the thing that, yeah, what, what's the biggest takeaway that you want folks uh, while they're reading and, and afterwards to be able to apply um, to, to, to yeah, their daily I lives? I think,
1: I've thought about this a lot. Um, I think that my goal of the book has always been twofold. And it's the same goal that I have when I teach anything. And that is to introduce my students to something new, to something that they don't know. But equally important, to affirm the knowledge that they already have. Um, And I think that when we think about Black abolitionists, what I want people to know, to take away, is that Black people are central to their own emancipation. That Black people's resistance is responsible for their own emancipation. Um, and if you know that, when you read this book, I hope you will be affirmed in the knowledge that you have. And if you don't know that, I hope that you will be exposed to something really great and really new in reading this book.
0: And so, yeah. <laughs> final question, final question. Like I said, book, book is done and everything. But, you know, <laughs> we, we a little greedy over here at the New York South <laughs> American Studies channel. So we kind of like try to try to uh, uh, outline the next <laughs> time we're going to have you on the airwaves. And so... Um, it w- is, oh, what is yes. what's next for you, uh, Doctor <laughs> Kelly Carter Jackson? What, what, so what, what next what's next?
1: I would love to say you know my bed, but like, <laughs> I would love to say right. <laughs> I mean, but I I yep. you know yep. uh, I am a workaholic. I will admit it. Um, and so I am constantly thinking about mm-hmm. new um new projects, new ideas, and so I am working on an article, um, that just focuses on the idea of Black women. Uh, the abolitionist movement and violence. Um, it's called dare you meet a woman? And I'm working on a, a, um, a copy of uh, an article for that now, but my next book project is actually something completely, um, different. I'm looking at a man by the name of Joseph LaRouche, Mm. who was the only black passenger on the Titanic. Um, Mm -hmm. And he's Haitian. Yes. And he is of, of Haitian royalty. His uncle was the president of Haiti. He descends from Jean-Jacques Dessalines. He uh, uh, immigrates to France uh, to become an engineer, experiences a lot of discrimination. And um, and really that discrimination is what propels him, pushes him to go back home. And so uh, um, he gets tickets on the Titanic. And his wife and, and daughter survive, but he does not. And so I talk about the story, not just to give, I don't want this next project just to be a biography of his life, but I really want it to be a story about how we understand Black movement and migration. Sort of how we were talking about earlier, I feel like Black people are always having to leave home in search of home, that anti-Blackness is so global that it's constantly pushing Black people around and forcing them to to move and relocate, to find new places to live and to be and belong um, and so that's what I'm focusing on on now. The title of the book is called uh, "Losing the Rouge: The Story of the Only Black Passenger." Um, but it's new. It's it's really really new. I'm at the early early stages. So mm-hmm. I probably will not get to to the bulk of the research and the writing for that until sometime towards the end of this year. But it's I'm excited about it. It's it's a lot of fun. It's really really fascinating. Um, and it's, and it's completely different for me. It's outside the 19th century, but I'm, but I'm excited to take it on.
0: Great. And actually, did you have a,
1: um, a talk? I did. I did. And that was great. (laughs) I was thinking at the Massachusetts Historical Society. Uh, when was that? I think it was maybe in November of last year um and it and it went really yeah. well I got a lot of mm-hmm, good mm-hmm. feedback so I've been I've been workshopping ideas just to get feedback from people about how this book can develop and where it can go and what points it's going to pivot on and things of that nature
0: there we go that's awesome because I was going to say I I've been I, I follow mass massive circle a lot and so I remember seeing that I was like so when you soon you brought up that book I was like oh, <laughs> there, there, there can only be one
1: yes, person that would that's be doing me. this work so <laughs>
0: So once again, <laughs> add another connection, add another connection among the, the, the 5,000 that we already have at this moment. So, um, you know, thank you so much for, for coming on the program, uh, uh, Professor. This has been a, a the honor is, is all mine. Thank my, you, thank uh, you, you for know, having
1: it's me.
0: Having, it's phenomenal. And so once again, folks, we have the, the blessed honor to have dr kelly carter jackson on to discuss her brand new published book this is being recorded march 1st of 2019 and so this is the release day of the phenomenal book uh, that's actually published by our friends just up the road from me pen press entitled force and freedom black abolitionists and the politics of violence and so in dr kelly carter jackson is assistant professor in the Africana Studies Department at Wellesley College. And you know me, I am your host. The as some would call it, uh indefatigable or whatever, how do you however you say that word? You know, as I was told in the email once, can't even talk at this point. It's been a long day. Um, but once again, folks, I am your host, Adam McNeil, and it's a blessing and honor to be your host. And like I always say at the end of our interviews, over and Out.